0: Thanks for downloading the Humanities Institute of Ireland podcast. This podcast series features recordings of academic papers from events hosted by the Humanities Institute of Ireland in University College Dublin. For more information, go to www.ucd.ie forward slash HII. In this episode, a paper by Professor Gregory Castle of Arizona State University. His paper was entitled In Transit, Bram Stoker's Dracula and the Postcolonial Sublime. Among the massive documents that constitute Bram Stoker's Dracula is an entry in Mina Murray's journal, recounting an old man's whinging about his coming death. He speaks of the wind out over the sea that's bringing with it loss and wreck and sore and distress. Then he exclaims, look, look, there's something in that wind and in the host beyond that sounds and looks and tastes and smells like death. It's in the air. I feel it coming. Though he speaks of the angel of death coming for him, one cannot help but see in these words the prophecy of Dracula's arrival and with him the horrible promise he holds out for his victims. Like so much in Stoker's novels, these lines invoke the passage of the unknown and terrible other whose presence takes on the character of an invasion, a contamination, a usurpation of time and eternity. For many of Stoker's readers, Passages like this allegorize the fear of what some critics call reverse colonization, the revenge of the oppressed on their oppressors. But we might see in this passage the more terrifying possibility of a world order in which the difference between oppressed and oppressor, reason and unreason, time and eternity, vanishes. An undead world of the sort promised by Count Dracula is unthinkable, unknowable, unprecedented. His coming presages a world beyond the security of nation and imperium and beyond the comforts of time and of heaven. We might therefore read it as an allegory of the dawning of a new dark empire. Postcolonial theory has made such readings not only possible but irresistible. Stephen Arata's case for reading Dracula in terms of reverse colonization is grounded on a conclusion shared by many other critics that the forces of colonial modernity had combined to erode Victorian confidence in the inevitability of British progress and hegemony. In another important study, Alien Nation, Canon Schmidt points to the prevailing anxiety concerning the status of the imperial nation. On the surface, Dracula abandons nationalism altogether for largely and explicitly supranational distinctions, yet it persistently deploys nationalist tactics in its representation of the East-West divide. Schmidt suggests further that the Orientalism so evident in the text masks what the plot itself confirms, that between West and East, human and vampire, Anglo and Irish, there is no difference. But he also points out that for the colonialist, East is East and West and West and evermore shall be. The idea of the alien nation can barely contain these contradictions in part because, as Michael Hart and Antonio Negre argue, post-colonial theory is so intent on combating the remnants of a past form of domination that it fails to recognize the new form that is looming over it in the present. In their own examination of imperialism and colonialism, they attempt to describe a new form of power, the passage of empire, which is precisely what I think looms over Stoker's novel in the form of a gothic future too terrible to contemplate. Dracula dramatizes not only the breakdown of the dialectical logic that subtends national sovereignty and the imperial order it supports, but also, and perhaps principally, the sublime horror of a world after colonialism, a world in which historical time is dissolved in the dreadful infinity of a dark, vampiric multitude. The dark mimesis that haunts the tale, the doubling and mimicry that links beast and hunter in an intimate communion, is a symptom of an underlying reality that invites a reconfiguration of the sublime. The traditional notion of the sublime, drawn from the work of Edmund Burke and Immanuel Kant, focuses on terror as the source of sublime affect, specifically, as Burke puts it, the idea of terror, both in the animal kingdom, serpents and poisonous animals, and in the elements, a prospect of the ocean. But Dracula is neither animal nor beast. This thing is not human, Mina notes in her journal, not even beast, and he dissembles every element. The horror of the vampire is that of an unthinkable mode of existence that erases all distinctions between races, classes, national identities, species, and, most frightening of all, between being and non-being. Dracula and those upon whom he prays do not face each other as mirror images, a position that serves only to reinscribe the antagonisms and the autonomy of nation states, but move in concert as compossible elements of undifferentiated multiplicities, forces and counterforces that traverse territories and spaces with little regard for or recognition of boundaries and borders. The true horror of Stoker's novel lies in the prophecy of a world in which the other, indeed, alterity as such, no longer resides in the essence of an other being, but in the activity of a passage, a transition, a traversal. In this understanding of passage, the erasure of borders, and a temporality outside of historical time, we find the key not only to Dracula's power, but also to the power of the crew of light that seeks to destroy him. The post-colonial sublime, therefore, refers not so much to the horrors of capitalism in the era of colonial modernity, to the vision it offers of a new empire, one that accumulates power and extends across the globe on the basis of its capacity to develop itself, as Hart and Negre write, more deeply to be reborn and to extend itself throughout the biopolitical latticework of world society. In Stoker's Gothic vision, the sublime emerges as a form of passage that suspends time, consciousness, and being in the untimely future of the undead. The post-colonial sublime takes the measure of this passage which not only threatens dominant forms of historical legitimation that guarantee national sovereignty but holds the future of the nation, of capitalism, of Christian salvation hostage. It registers the loss of what ought to come next and the terrifying recognition of time's privation. Terrors are leaked to privation, writes Jean-Francois Lyotard. Privation of light, terror of darkness. Privation of others... Terror of solitude Privation of language Terror of silence Privation of objects Terror of emptiness Privation of life Terror of death What is terrifying is the It happens that Will not happen That it will stop happening Leotard's postmodern sublime Emphasizes the unpresentable That in Kant's aesthetics Is recovered through the double pleasure Of imagination's failure And thereby reconceives temporality As that which may not happen The negative dialectic of, is it happening, is precisely what we find in Stoker's Gothic. That is to say, the possibility that nothing will happen, which is simultaneously a feeling that transcends reason and an openness to the, is it happening? And this possibility of a nothing, that is an opening, coalesces in a now, that is outside the temporal moment of the present. A now, that is, for Leotard, a stranger to consciousness and cannot be composed in terms of it. Rather, it is what dismantles consciousness, what dismisses consciousness. It is what consciousness cannot formulate and even what consciousness forgets in order to compose itself. The crew of light in Stoker's novel, bound to spiritual assumptions about time and to the new, as is so evident in their reliance on information technology, is no match for Dracula, a monstrosity and malformation who has rights because of his sublime potential. This potential, I want to suggest, lies in an openness to the question, is it happening, that suspends time and inaugurates an undead futurity. That Stoker's protagonist's struggle to foreclose any recognition of this new world is a measure not of terror vanquished, but of terror deferred, for the future that will have happened must be preserved in the face of a question that must not be posed. The post-colonial sublime, therefore, is avant la lettre in the sense that, in the epoch of colonialism, it presents itself in its very unpresentability as a prophecy. In transit, in transition, in traversing the globe, the crew of light seeks to conquer the sublime threat to its world, but it is restricted to the limits of reason and law, at least at first, in which it remains wedded by necessity. Only Dracula performs as a kind of free agent, cut loose from phenomenal time, his negative determination constructing him as intelligible but not presentable. For this intelligibility for Leotard, does not contribute to the knowledge of phenomena, according to understanding. It is unconditioned. It is not situated in succession. This may help us understand Dracula's tactical use of information, like the London Directory and Whitaker's Almanac, to transform human time into undead infinity, in which the sublime is kindled by the threat that nothing further might happen. It can also help us understand the utter failure of the crew of light truly to know Dracula through its archival efforts, for these efforts remain embedded in the realm of reason, to be effective against the sublime threat, they must make the passage into another realm, which for Kant and Léotard is constituted by art, and which in Stoker's novel finds its corollary in the sublime aesthetics of vampiric reproduction. From the time of Franz Fanon in the 1960s, the discourse of anti-colonial resistance has been formulated as a struggle against dialectical thinking of the sort associated with Hegel whose view of history depended on, depends on a synthetic logic in which a positive term, the objective will of universal history, absorbs and assimilates a negative term, the subjective will of the individual in the evolution of the nation state. Fanon argues that the Hegelian dialectical, dialectical relation to the other is unattainable in a colon, colonized and civilized society, but this refusal of dialectics did not mean that the idea of the nation must be abandoned. Like so many theorists who followed him, Fanon recognizes the necessity of national consciousness, which for him means making the nation a a totality for and of the people. National consciousness is the living expression of the nation, the collective consciousness in motion of the entire people. It is the enlightened and coherent praxis of men and women. The dialectics of colonialism fail to synthesize positive and negative elements. Rather than smooth closure and self-identity, Fanon finds in the colony a brutally compartmentalized world, a continuous struggle in which violence begets violence and the colonized, simultaneously beaten and recalcitrant, stubbornly refuses assimilation, but at the same time is cut off from traditional structures of feeling and modes of sociality. And while material violence creates the conditions in which colonized subjects feel the full weight of colonial oppression, The epistemic violence of colonial discourse ensures that material violence will be legitimized by what Gayatri Spivak calls the remotely orchestrated, far-flung, and heterogeneous project to constitute the colonial subject as other. The global terrain of imperialism depended on an ideology of binomial difference, uh, which Edward Said describes as Orientalism. In his view, Western conceptions of the non-Western world were based not on imperial or accurate assessments of people and places, but on the production of the Orient as orientalized. This production is often cloaked in the language of the picturesque, as when Jonathan Harker remarks about the Slovaks he sees on his journey through Romania, on stage they would be set down at once as some Oriental band of brigands. That they are very harmless and rather wanting in natural self-assertion, as he is told, though we don't, know, we don't know by whom, only ratifies the stereotype by multiplying its effects. A discourse that fixes on and fixates, uh, fixates on and fixes the colonized in these terms presupposes an unbroken arc of knowledge and power that connects Western statemen, statesmen and scholars and forms the rim of the stage containing the Orient. As an object of discourse, Said writes, the non-Western world becomes not so much an intellectual spectacle for the West as a privileged terrain for it, a purely imaginary space of discursive totalization in the interests of social control. Valentin Mudimbi, in his analysis of the invention of Africa, regards such imaginary constructs as forms of epistemological ethnocentrism, which is the belief that scientifically there is nothing to be learned from them unless it is already ours or comes from us. Both Saeed and Mudembi demonstrate that the totalization of the non-Western world through ethnographic epistemology, ethnocentric epistemologies, which are blind to actual social and material conditions in colonized territories, veil a fundamental scission or dehiscence. Ironically, the creation of what Saeed calls an absolute unanimity between Orientalist discourse and actual conditions provoked the only crisis in the history of Western thought about and dealings with the Orient. In writing Dracula in the form of an archive purportedly concerned only with simple facts which contain no statement of past things wherein memory may err, Stoker unveils the constitutive crisis of Orientalist thought that its discourse was radically incommensurate with its object. And this unveiling not only undermines the authenticity of the accounts provided by Jonathan and the crew of light, but adumbrates the undead futurity in which human time is foreclosed and heaven replaced by a ghastly infinity. Stoker's novel draws a tight circle around a story that cannot be authenticated undermining the totalizing desire of an archival discourse, which by extension stands in for the preeminence of Western knowledge of the sort Said and Mudimbi critique. The crisis of imperialism, that its fundamental documents and authority are at complete variance with the realities of material social life, is therefore not the return of the repressed, but the very discourse that represses the colonized other in the first place. It is no wonder that the horror of Dracula cannot be authentically represented for authenticity, as conventionally understood in the colonial context, is always already inauthentic, the function of a discourse that rejects any authority but its own. Postcolonial theory, after Said, has sought to critique this foundational inauthenticity and to find openings for new forms of knowledge that render impotent the totaling drive uh, to authenticate. But as Hart and Negre point out, this theoretical project is confronted with a dilemma for it is situated in the paradigmatic place of modernity itself, both inside and outside at the threshold of the point of crisis, a situation that leaves critique in a hopelessly complicit relation with what it seeks to overcome. Homi Baba's theory of colonial mimicry and his analysis of the temporality of the nation remain the most important examples of how far this project can go towards challenging the limits of imperialism. On his view, colonial discourse creates a continuous loop of misrecognition by which the colonizer's discriminatory gaze is taken up by the colonized. At first as a process of asymmetrical identification, the colonized as subordinated to the colonizer, and later as a form of resistance. For Baba, the colonial subject who mimes colonial discourse does so from the site of colonialism's constitutive fracture, the mise en a beam of its hollow transcendence. The open textuality of colonial mimicry returns with a difference, the discriminatory gaze of the colonizer which Baba, following Fanon, describes as the construction of the colonized subject as effect of stereotypical discourse and therefore thereby uncovers the dehiscence at the foundation of colonialism. As Spivak has noted, this dehiscence is simultaneously the space for the work of theory of other knowledges an inaccessible blankness circumscribed by an interpretable text. One of the most persistent questions in Irish studies has to do with the uh, the applicability of this theoretical project for Ireland, particularly with respect to Anglo-Irish writers like Stoker. Historians and scholars have long debated the question of whether Ireland was in fact a colony, particularly after the Act of Union of 1800, because, as Joe Cleary points out, It was represented by its own members of Parliament in Westminster, a status extended neither to the American colonies before their independence nor to any of Britain's other white dominions or colonies in Asia and Africa. This status did not prevent the construction of the Catholic Irish as culturally and racially inferior as is amply demonstrated in 19th century representations. The cultural and geographic proximity of uh, of Ireland to England, together with the prominence of a proxy ruling class, the Anglo-Irish ascendancy, elements of which supported the republican cause, led to the creation of a hybrid society, divided by religion and a history of repression, but sutured by language and customs, by shared experiences and relationships. If we accept that colonialism is grounded in an originary fracture between the discourse of the other and the reality of the other, Ireland is therefore not the exception that proves the rule, but rather the exception that founds it. Dracula underscores this exceptionality and ambivalence in its presentation of a demonized other that moves transversely across the coordinates of imperialism for the count, like the Slovaks and Wallachians who do his bidding, is of a subject race, linked by analogy to the Irish peasant. But he is also a rapacious and cruel master, linked by a similar analogy to the Anglo-Irish absentee landlord. Moreover, he is bound ineluctably to hallowed ground but at the same time, the host and the crucifix are the only effective weapons against his hegemony. This confused and ambivalent identity, colonizer and colonized at once, underscores what Baba and other post-colonial critics have said about nationalism and colonialism generally. They are founded on crisis, failure, the abyss. For Hart and Negre, however, post colonial theorists like Baba too often fail to appreciate that colonial structures of power persist in the cl- post colonial world. The only form of domination Baba recognizes, they assert, is that of modern or national sovereignty. To reject the concept of national sovereignty is to reject the temporality of the nation, which Benedict Anderson, borrowing a phrase from Walter Benjamin, describes as an idea of homogeneous empty time in which simultaneity is, as it were, transverse cross-time, marked not by prefiguring and fulfillment, Benjamin's messianic time, but by temporal coincidence and measured by clock and calendar. Hart and Negre's response to Anderson's immensely influential argument that the nation is an imagined community is to invert it, so that the nation becomes the only way to imagine community. Every imagination of a community becomes overcoded as a nation, and hence our conception of community is severely impoverished. They note further that in the subaltern nation, as in the dominant countries, the multiplicity and singularity of the multitude, which for them form the positivity of empire, are negated in the straitjacket of the identity and homogeneity of the people. One might turn, as Stephen Shapiro does, to world systems theory to find a way to understand the forces shaping the postcolonial epoch. Yet here, too, the conflict of nations, specifically England and Germany over South Africa, serves as the general context for Britain's anxiety at becoming undead, a vitiated imperial power in the world system. This anxiety is, in part, a response to an unknown, indeterminate future, one which Shapiro locates in gothic cultural performances that register the articulation between a fading phase and an emerging one within capital's long duration. And he is right, I think, to see Dracula as a harbinger of complex world systems. But I would like to suggest that the world systems framework does not allow us to see clearly the true horror of what the novel foretells, in large part because it retains the binary structure of national sovereignty and interstate antagonisms within a global market that for Shapiro fuels the anxieties legible in phobic tales of reverse colonization and national representations that seem only to refer to a metropolis and its peripheries. The Janus-like temporalities that he discerns, the historical return of repressed social collectives and the Gothic prophecy of oncoming crises characterize the dialectical advance of capitalist development rather than the abolition of dialectics altogether in the undead post-colony. This alternative vision of empire is a Gothic form of the disjunctive temporality that Achille Mudembe describes, discontinuities, reversals, inertias, and swings that overlay one another and penetrate one another and envelop one another in entanglement. Hart and Negre's theory of empire is an attempt to define the post-colony without succumbing to the dialectics undergirding national sovereignty. They advocate a new form of sovereignty, one that de-differentiates difference and creates zones of indistinction as part of a new form of network power, in which powers and counterpowers are structured in a boundless and inclusive architecture. Unlike national sovereignty, which is designed for conquest, pillage, genocide, colonization, and slavery, the imperial sovereignty of empire extends and consolidates the model of network power. Its space is always open. By misrecognizing the domination, the nature of domination, post colonial theory too often tends to advance hybridity as a realized politics of difference, setting differences to play across boundaries, which means that tactics of hybridity, ambivalence, mimicry, and difference can be effective only on the old terrain of national antagonisms. The chief value of post-colonial theorists like Said, Baba, and Mudimbi is that they recognize the transnational dimension of imperialism and thus of empire and thereby demonstrate, albeit symptomatically, that the seeds of empire understood as a new mode of sovereignty were sown in the global development of, capital, of capitalism, particularly in the second half of the 19th century. I want to suggest that the Anglo-Irish Stoker caught on the hop as terry eagleton puts it between conflicting social norms whose whole existence is barely tolerable in betweenness functions similarly as a symptom of the passage of empire speaking of the cycles of international struggles that characterize the peak period of national sovereignty and the old world order hart and negre note that the advent of this passage was discernible well before it was established For such struggles anticipated and prefigured the processes of the globalization of capital and the formation of empire. Stoker wrote during the first of these cycles, and one way of understanding the ambivalence of his text is to situate it within the broader context of the passage of empire. Ambivalence thus takes on a whole new meaning if we cease thinking of it in terms of the colonizer colonized opposition or of a contagion that emanates from an other place, outside the precincts of the autonomous national space of the imperium, it makes sense, as a starting point at least, to see it as the normative state of an emergent globalization, one whose radical, undifferentiated, open spaces and network power are both unknowable and unpresentable. If we read Dracula as an adumbration of the passage of empire, we are in a position to rethink the Gothic sublime in terms of what comes after the era of imperialism. For if, as Leotard suggests, it happens, comes before the question, is it happening? That is, if the event precedes the questions we form about it, then something remains to be determined, something that hasn't been determined before. Everything adduced by the documents collected by the crew of light point toward a terrifying silence in answer to the question, is it happening? But this is precisely what the crew of light cannot allow to transpire, this indeterminate temporality of continuance that leaves open the possibility of a terrifying disclosure yet to come. Tellingly, Stoker communicates this refusal less at the level of theme than in the structure of the novel itself specifically in its obsession with facts and accuracy that in the end fails to establish any authentic authentic reality. Indeed, we discover that the narrative gains whatever authority it has from its apparent lack of authenticity, that is, from its proliferation of voices, differences, technologies, and hybrid knowledges that have no referent save for the impossible future towards which they gesture, like real messages in simulated bottles. The sublime is thus a kind of promissory note issued by the colonial other to be called in only once the other has breached the divide between west and east. Dracula clears a space for the open textuality of the other but simultaneously conceals this opening with a shroud of purportedly empirical facts and accurate documents riddled with anxiety about what is to come. The primary textual effect of this curious opening is the deferral of the ground of the question is it happening? A form of temporal privation that disavows the knowledge of Dracula's masonic attempt to deterritorialize time in the production of a dark multitude. But this disavowal undermines the legitimacy of their quest and the authenticity of the documents that Van Helsing and the crew so assiduously collect. If textuality produces terror as an affect, the truth of the facts communicated textually is fundamentally unknowable and, in the end, inauthentic. As Jonathan remarks at the end of the novel, in all the mass of the material of which the record is composed, there is hardly one authentic document, nothing but a mass of typewriting, except, that is, the documents produced in the heat of passage as the crew runs Dracula to ground. But even these can, at best, authenticate a wild story that no one would believe. For Peter Garrett, the reason hardly one authentic document r- remains is of course that Dracula in his invasion of Dr. Seward's asylum has destroyed all the original manuscript versions of the various journals and letters as well as the phonographic cylinders on which Seward kept his diary. Leah Richard raises the pertinent question when she asks why a fantastic tale of the undead should bear any greater credence just because a group's version of events were supported by original records rather than mechanically reproduced uniform documents. Her conclusion, however, that Stoker's text reflects the anxiety about information that was beginning to grow acute at the end of the 19th century, gets at only part of the problem, for the question of authenticity does not disappear under the pressure of anxiety about information. Indeed, it is raised even more urgently, precisely because information in its anxiety producing multiplicity and ambiguity constitutes the field of what empire marks as authentic that is, in the sense of being for itself, as a self-authorizing, self-regulating existence. The discourse of the passage of empire, therefore, is radically authentic, in the sense that it is coextensive with it as a material and social reality, one that acts on its own authority. The recognition that knowledge is authentic only in its textual being as pure information, which freely mingles the empirical with the superstitious, the mundane with the horrific, the newspaper with the sacred text, produces sublimity not because the aura of the authentic has been lost, nor even because it has been displaced onto the very technologies that were presumed not to possess an aura. The sublime is produced rather by Dracula's passage, which is limbed in a rhetoric of deferral that places knowledge out of reach in a future that is unknown and perhaps unknowable. Jennifer Wick, among others, has written of the importance of modern technologies of writing used so prominently in Dracula, the typewriter, the dictaphone, the telegraph, and of how the fictional representation of technology indexes major technological and epistemological shifts in late Victorian society and deepens our understanding of Stoker's modernism. In fact, Dracula's relative modernism, uh, relative modernity, most evident in his knowledge of and adaptability to modern urban life, both frightens and galvanizes his enemies. His attempt to be more British than the British in consolidating his goals leaves the crew of light no choice but to assemble an archive that could counter the dire threat he poses. So while Garrett is right that the novel repeatedly draws our attention to its emerging form, the production and reproduction of its narrative, his conclusion that the isolation and uncertainty of individual accounts leads to the mutual support and assurance of shared knowledge and beliefs, misjudges the temporality of knowledge that defers knowledge until some future time. He misses, in short, the temporal passage inaugurated by Dracula, which creates the condition of indistinction that forecloses mutuality and assurance and that blurs the boundaries between knowledges and between liberation and domination. From the start... Textual anxiety is marked by the threat of cultural indifference. One of Jonathan's first observations is the impression, that he, uh, the impression he has that we are leaving the West and entering the East. Like a good Orientalist, he has acquired some foreknowledge of Transylvania and has learned that every known superstition in the world is gathered into the horseshoe of the Carpathians as if it were some kind of imaginative whirlpool. Ostensibly, he makes a record of his travels as an aide de memoire. may refresh my memory when I talk over my travels with Mina. By the second day, however, he is doing more than aiding his memory. When an old woman gives him a crucifix in Bisritz, on the frontier beyond which is Bukovina and Dracula's castle, he finds himself unable to decide if it is the old lady's fear or the many ghostly traditions of this place or the crucifix itself that causes him to feel uneasy. His journal takes on the character of a posthumous text that will certify what will have happened to him. If this book should ever reach Mina before I do, he writes, while dwelling on the meaning of the crucifix, let it bring my goodbye. At this point, the journal becomes the locus of the sublime, by virtue not of the scenery it describes, the strange and uncanny spectacle of the ring of wolves who were a hundred times more terrible in the grim silence which held them than even when they howled, but of the impossible knowledge that it defers. I am all in a sea of wonders, he notes, once he has spent a little time with the Count. I doubt, I fear, I think strange things which I dare not confess to my soul. The habit of entering accurately soothes him, but more important, it enables him to reserve his experiences for later. For knowledge may somehow or some time be useful to me. Jonathan's reliance on useful and accurate knowledge, painstakingly recorded, ultimately redounds against him, and he becomes aware of this betrayal precisely in the context of a deferral that announces the likelihood that he, too, will become one of the undead. He is made to sign a number of letters to his employer, to Mina, which are to be posted at different times in the future. I know now the span of my life, he writes. God help me. Not only do his letters replicate Dracula's own passage from East to West, they adumbrate symptomatically the the passage of empire, in which the very distinction between East and West, past and present, is dissolved in a re-territorialized global network of power and information and the multiplication of temporalities that opens the future to a terrible indetermination. Jonathan receives a glimmer of this passage when he considers the being of Dracula, What manner of man is this, he writes in his journal, or what manner of creature is it in the semblance of a man? The terror of the dark mimicry intensifies when Jonathan realizes that Dracula has stolen his garb and now masquerades as him on his quests. He will allow others to see me as they think so that he may leave evidence that I have been seen. The experience of resemblance is not a form of imitation but an invitation to become like the other which is ratified by his success at learning Dracula's trick of scaling the castle walls and by the return of the dim phantom shapes, the three ghastly women to whom he was doomed. His journal ends in a flurry of hysterical projections into the future, posting his own desire beyond the terrible precincts of the East, into which he has fallen prisoner. I shall not remain alone with them. I shall try to scale the castle wall farther than I have yet attempted. I shall take some of the gold with me, lest I want it later. I may find a way from this dreadful place. His hysteria is driven by the sublime experience of terror that foretells a post-colonial world order in which the vampire and his victims seek to resemble one another and together achieve, together achieve a fatal non-identity. The dark mimesis that Jonathan witnesses in which Dracula sets out to resemble him subtends the acquisition and transfer of knowledge for the crew of light must come not only to think like Dracula but to attempt to be like him. We see this form of resemblance in Van Helsing's openness to other knowledges and in Mina's peculiar telepathic connection with the Count, a connection that conflates her own identity with his into a seamless, undifferentiated awareness. In both cases, the question of knowledge, like the text, text itself, must remain open. On the one hand, we have the incessant recourse to facts and accurate reporting, as if by the sheer accumulation of information the crew could contain and ultimately destroy the count. On the other hand, we have the recourse to what should be non-knowledge, principally the sacraments of the church, superstitions, and folklore, which he appropriates for his epistemological arsenal. Stoker's open text is thus formed by the hysterical embrace of what can be rationally known and an irrational acceptance of other knowledges against all rationality. It is in this context of hybrid knowledge that we witness the passage of reason through its opposite. He stands in stark contrast to his his more orthodox protege, Dr. Seward. You do not let your eyes see nor your ears hear, Van Helsing tells him, and that which is outside your daily life is not of account to you. Van Helsing uh, faults science for its need to explain all and to see nothing that it cannot explain but yet we see around us every day the growth of new beliefs which think themselves new and which are yet the old which pretend to be young like the fine ladies at the opera. Van Helsing's witticism gets to the heart of the matter. Knowledge is not only power but all knowledge. It is essentially the same no matter how we might try to disguise it or make distinctions between fact and fiction, science and superstition. Moreover, his manner of wielding knowledge anticipates what Bruno Latour calls the factish god, one for whom certain knowledge, facts, have become mystified, like a fetish, and detached from their empirical basis. One is thereby freed from the necessity of belief, which is replaced by the robust certainty that allows practice to pass into action without the practitioner ever believing in the difference between construction and reality, imminence and transcendence. As dramatized in Dracula, this is a horrifying epistemology based on the sublime misrecognition not only of what exists now, the knowledge of the scientists, but of what can only come later, the Gothic specter of the subjugated other whose return is a contamination. The trust Van Helsing requires of Seward is to understand not the knowledge he presently holds, but that which can only become knowable in the future. Like Dracula himself, then helsing shrouds his knowledge in mystery while offering glimpses of it in the form of its deferral i take it that you do not that you cannot trust me now he tells seward for you do not understand and there may be more times than i shall want that i sh- when i shall want to trust you to trust me but that you cannot and may not and must not understand but the time will come when your trust shall be whole and complete in me and when you shall understand as though the sunlight himself shone through. Seward must not understand. He must remain in the dark where the unknowable serves as the opposite of fact. But Van Helsing already suspects that the unknown can be known, but not by him, at least not yet. The border between knowledge and the unknown, between those who know and those who do not, breaks down precisely when Van Helsing and later the others realize that the other knows. Once the reality of other knowledges sinks in, the truly sublime moment shines forth, for it becomes apparent that the other, the non-identical element in the imperial negative dialectic of of recognition, has escaped dialectics altogether. The radical non-identity of the undead, neither identical to itself nor non-identical in relation to any other thing, collapses the distinction between the primordial temporality of the colonized other and the homogeneous empty time that enables the narrative of progress behind Western imperialism. The dark macianism that Dracula inspires, the foul redemption he elicits from those he vamps who are thus freed from time, points toward a future in which no distinctions can be drawn. For what the crew of light fear most is the cessation of life and death, of earthly time crowned by heavenly eternity which is the spiritual negation of the question, is it happening? Despite an elaborated system of organized and dated documents, there falls upon the events narrated a curious temporal indistinction. This is nowhere more evident than in Mina Harker's account of Jonathan's journal. In an early letter to Lucy, she explains, without quite knowing it, the temporality of misrecognition that the journal both records and symbolizes. Jonathan had told her, take it and keep it, read it if you will, but never let me know. By leaving it unread, it is transformed into a sacrament, an outward and visible sign for us all our lives that we trusted each other, that I would never open it unless it were for his own dear sake or for the sake of some stern duty. Jonathan, she relates, is so overwhelmed by the gesture that he tells her that he would go through all the past again to win her hand if need be the poor dear meant to have said a part of the past, but he cannot think of time yet, and I shall not wonder if at first he mixes up not only the month, but the year. By not knowing, Mina intentionally misrecognizes what could be known in an act of deferral that projects knowledge into a future in which what Jonathan has experienced, which must remain unknown to him, will have happened. In a similar fashion, Lucy's languorous state after being vamped takes the form of a dim memory of anticipation, which she later records in her diary and that is later still reviewed by the crew of light. I have a dim remembrance of long, anxious times of waiting and fearing, darkness in which there was not even the pain of hope to make present distress more poignant and then long spells of oblivion and the rising back to life as a diver coming up through a great press of water. Like Mina, Lucy does not know what she knows about her own induction into Dracula's dark empire, but it will ultimately serve as important knowledge in Van Helsing's investigations. Like Jonathan's journal, Lucy's diary, Lucy's diary demonstrates how the post in the postcolonial sublime resides precisely in the deferral of terror, which is located not in one's experience, but in one's record of it, and beyond that, in another's experience of reading it. In the epistemological terms in which Stoker sets his tale, we confront the greatest terror of all, the deprivation of what comes next, when the question, is it happening, finds a ground in the very texts that seek to prevent it being posed. Possessing knowledge is crucial, then, but even more crucial is knowing the right time to share it. Indeed, we might regard the relentless deferral of knowledge to some future time not simply as a means of controlling information and thus holding power over others, but rather as a form of misrecognition that knows itself as such and posits, through tactics of deferral, a time when a true recognition will be possible. Van Helsing, the keeper of knowledge, both empirical and esoteric, consistently reveals that he knows, but he does not reveal what he knows. Not for the first time, Seward implores his mentor to help him understand what is happening to Lucy. In God's name, he exclaims, what does it all mean? Was she or is she mad or what sort of horrible danger is it? His bewilderment leaves him with nothing more to say. Do not trouble about it now, Van Helsing tells him. Forget it for the present. You shall know and understand it all in good time, but it will be later one could not arrive at a more clearly articulated example of the logic of misrecognition. Seward is far more perplexed by events than he ought to be, given his proximity to Renfield, who is mixed with the count in an indexy way and cannot help but misrecognize the problem with Lucy, while Van Helsing clearly recognizes it but cannot reveal it until a future time when its revelation can be met with understanding. He is not simply in control of knowledge, but manip- manipulates the temporality of its disclosure. All in good time, all shall be revealed, but not yet. Seward, like the others in the crew of light, must be tutored by terror. He must come slowly to the realization that what is happening to Lucy is beyond the realm of science and reason. Lucy's fate, after having been vamped, illustrates well the horrifying misrecognition in which the loved one we think we know is not the thing captured by our knowledge, or at least not quite. For in Lucy's case, a residue of the human being she once was, hence her dual life, persists in the phenomenal abyss that is the undead. Because Lucy died in a trance, Van Helsing exclaims, so it is that she differ from all other. Usually when the undead sleep at home their face show what they are but this so sweet that was when she not undead she go back to the nothings of the common dead Lucy entranced is relocated outside the temporality of national belonging in a space of negations that was not undead back to nothings common dead which leaves no space for being however much Van Helsing attempts to locate her prior being in a trance state that points ineluctably toward an undead future. Her entrancement thus allegorizes the post-colonial sublime for lodged in the etymology of trance, which derives from the old French transire, to depart, but also to be numb with fear, which is in turn rooted in the Latin transire, to pass over, to cross, is really the horror of passage, of being in transit, her trance-like stillness far from indicating lifelessness is the telltale sign of her passage over to the realm of indistinction a hallmark of Dracula's dark empire only the radical recourse of the stake, a form of posting that forecloses the undead future can reopen the door to the heavenly reward she has forfeited only then can she claim her innocence for after her second death her face displays unequaled sweetness, and purity. She has been given her soul back so that she may present herself as innocent before God, for she is not a grinning devil now, Van Helsing tells Arthur, not any more a foul thing for all eternity. No longer she is the devil's undead. She is God's true dead, whose soul is with him. That thence Helsing recognizes this truth, arrived at through untruth, is a testament to his willingness to confound reason with unreason in order to grasp the knowledge of the other. This confounding, this mixing together or mingling of knowledges foretells a future in which the dichotomy between self and other, human and non-human, dead and undead, will be obliterated in the deterritorialized zone of indistinction that is the native ground of the vampire. The temporality of this zone is not all in good time which presupposes a messianic moment that can overcome the homogeneous, empty time of history, but the end of the world. Lucy may have been saved, but what of the others? On this point, Stoker's novel is largely silent. In Lucy, we see a perverse form of colonial mimicry, which Baba describes as the desire for a reformed, recognizable other as a subject of a difference that is almost the same but not quite. But in her case, there is a turn of the screw in which ambivalence and difference are themselves subjected to a fractious and dispersive economy of de-differentiation. The passage of vampirism consists of no positive term and therefore exists outside dialectics and rational knowledge, even of the negative dialectics that approximates its radical non-identity. In this sense, Dracula not simply adumbrates the realm of empire as Hart and Negre describe it, but models the very technological innovations that make its passage possible, but in a gothicized and sublime form. This capacity to model empire is misrecognized by Van Helsing and the crew of light when they regard Dracula's knowledge as as a form of retardation. He possesses a big child brain that limits his power, but he is experimenting and doing it well. Van Helsing's chief worry is that Dracula will be the father or furtherer of a new order of beings whose road must lead through death, not life. He is worried, in short, that Dracula's self-development, his bildung, will enable the formation of the dark empire that obliterates distinctions in the pure negativity of death. Van Helsing's conclusion, this monster it has been creeping into knowledge, comes perilously close to the terrifying truth that Dracula will indeed be the furtherer of a world that will be unknowable to them unless they too become undead. The possibility of undead resemblance proves paradoxically to be the only way to prevent Dracula's furthering of a new and terrible world order. As he moves by water in his box, the crew of light follow by train and horseback, guided by Mina, whose vamped condition allows her to slip into a hypnotic trance in in which she acts out what Lucy only suggests by undergoing her own passage in a mimicry of Dracula's own. All is dark. I hear lapping water level with me and some creaking of wood on wood. This access to the unknowable count is at first a secret between Van Helsing and Jonathan. Later, we may have to take the others into our confidence, But the strategy of deferral, which is meant to allow the others to overcome their own ignorance and misconceptions, is precisely what has led to Mina's being vamped in the first place. What Van Helsing interprets as silence, for Mina did not speak, even when she wrote that which she wished to be known later, is in fact knowledge of vampiric passage itself. His willingness to exploit this knowledge underscores both his own resemblance to the Count and his resistance to the dark futurity that Mina resists and that Lucy very narrowly escapes. And Mina is eager to help. I may be of service, she bravely tells the crew, since you can hypnotize me and so learn that which I myself do not know. Tracking Dracula through Mina's trance is, at bottom, an attempt to remap the future, to know what cannot yet be known in the interests of preserving a world of difference in which Dracula will remain indisputably other. To follow Dracula, to follow Dracula's passage is to experience how empire both terrorizes and deterritorializes global spaces, destabilizing national sovereignty but also erasing the boundaries that demarcate the east as radically other. It reveals the terror that subtends territory, another etymological link for it is the terrifying dimension of futurity that propels deterritorializing projects like colonialism and that surfaces as the explicit logic of empire as Hart and Negre define it. To occupy territory, William Connolly writes, is both to receive sustenance and to exercise violence. It is to disclose strains of terror in the ambiguous logic of territorialization, particularly the forms of deterritorialization that erase boundaries and borders. When Jonathan Harker travels to Transylvania, when Count Dracula travels to London, territory becomes terrorized, and the crew find themselves displaced, both in their their own sphere and in that of the other. Terror dismantles territorial imperatives, and even the resistance, even resistance takes on a resemblance to what it resists. If Dracula incites a mimetic desire, even in a counter-terrorist like Van Helsing, it is because he prefigures a new ontological basis of antagonism within empire but also against and beyond empire at the same level of totality. Dracula is the dark messiah who for f- far from overcoming homogeneous empty time reinstates it as the temporality of the undead which substitutes indistinction in which there is no one that governs multitudes for homogeneity in which the one absorbs and assimilates the multitude. This is why the crew of light fear vampiric reproduction, for it generates an ungovernable multitude, a constellation of singularities that is the obverse of what Hart and Negre call the imperial eagle, the plural multitude of productive, creative subjectivities of globalization that have learned to sail, like the count, on an enormous sea a new terrain, mobile in space and flexible in time. Stoker anticipates the passage of empire and globalization by suggesting that the crew of light and everything it stands for and seeks to defend, reason, imperialism, the nation, is finished. It's time come and gone. If the crew of light have recourse to the tactics of national sovereignty, they do fight for England, it is because they cannot accept Dracula as the new messiah or the world he presages, a decentered, world, a uh, hierarchized world system characterized by dispersion and de-differentiation of multitudes without unity in a new imperial order. Van Helsing, ever the optimist, counters this terrible sublime possibility with the assertion of good things to come. In the last lines of the text, speaking of the, Hark- of the Harker's son, Quincy, he says, we want no proofs, we seek none to believe us, Already he knows his mother's sweetness and loving care. Later, he will understand how some men so loved her that they did dare much for her sake. The ambiguous conclusion of the tale must be wrapped round in the promise of familial unity and national harmony, lest we discover in young Quincy a further passage into the question, is it happening, rather than the restitution of heavenly futurity? the still point at which what ought to happen will have happened.